Okay, we've begun this uh, journey through the book of Genesis, and we've been, I know, throwing a lot at you, stirring things up. I know this because I'm getting a lot of questions, and I love the questions. The questions uh, tell me that you're being Israel, and Israel means to wrestle with God, and this is what God wants. It's what we want at Crossroads. Like, the text, his word is something that we need to wrestle into our hearts and into our lives and, and get it wrestled out so we can live it. So we've also started this thing called a podcast. And I don't know if you've uh, found it, but it's called The Locker Room. And that's another supplement to what we're doing here on Sunday mornings. And also coming up after Genesis 3, we get that to that spot. We're going to do a whole podcast on your questions and so if you have questions, uh, get them to us. Uh, you can submit your questions by either emailing them directly uh, to this website or email site. Oh, it's all up there. <laughs> Locker room at crossroads-bible.org. Um, or you can submit your questions in the Spotify app after clicking on uh, the latest episode. Just scroll down and find the Q&A. So... We don't want this to be a monologue. We want this to be a dialogue. So by way of review of, of just where we are thus far, uh, Genesis, the title, is actually a Greek word. And this is what you find, find out when you go to seminary, that if you want to sound, sound smart, you just uh, say things in Greek. I don't know why that is. Uh, but Genesis uh, is, a, is a Greek word. Genesis means source or origins. The original title, which is its Hebrew uh, title, is Bereshit. Bereshit means beginning, from in the beginning. It's the first word of our Bible. Begs the question, the beginning of what? Or to apply Genesis, the source or origins of what? And see, we automatically think the source and the origins of our world and how our world came to be, and we're already way off track for why God gave us the book of Genesis. So to stay on track, uh, we first need to acknowledge something that I think is important, that while Genesis, this book, was written for us, it was not written to us. And when we start to understand that, yes, it was for us, but not to us, uh, I think it gives us a chance to get into the purpose of this book because now we start to get into the shoes of the people that it was written to. And Genesis was written to a people whom God just rescued from Egypt and not just rescued them, but in this dramatic display of power, this mysterious God to them at this time who calls himself by this name Yahweh, who takes on the gods of Egypt, the river god, the sun god, right down to Pharaoh, who's the god of gods. He crushes these gods, and then he takes this, this little nation of slaves on his shoulders to freedom in a desert. And then he gives them this book, the first five chapters of the Bible. And in the first words, he's pretty much saying to them, let me introduce myself to you, I'm not the river God, I'm not the sun God or the moon God, I'm not some regional deity, I am the creator of the heavens and the earth, I'm that God. 
And so Genesis 1 is not here to tell us scientifically how the world came to be. It's first and foremost here to tell us about God. In the beginning, God. And that God is, as you keep reading, the God who moved into that dreaded tohu ve bohu, that formlessness, that emptiness, that existential hopelessness and meaninglessness, and he just unleashed upon that his word and his spirit and his kingdom come. His kingdom of light moves into that kingdom of darkness, coming from heaven to earth, all the while pushing out the chaos and bringing about order and beauty and harmony and shalom. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. Shalom, shalom. Theologians, when they look at this story and the God of this story, they come up with words like transcendence and eminence to speak about God. God being transcendent means that God is so beyond us. He's so above this universe that he's made. He's so other than uh, creation. That's transcendence. Eminence uh, speaks to this other aspect of God, his nearness, how God is personally involved in his world and how he's intimate and how he's intimate with us. And the Bible's two words for, for these two realities are holy or holiness and Emmanuel. That's what holiness means. It means to be holy other. It means to be distinct and set apart and set above. And the Bible says about God, God isn't just holy. He's not even just holy, holy, but God is holy, holy, holy. He's so exalted and so beyond uh, the world that he has made. And yet the Bible also says about God, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us, that God is actually among us, that he's intimately close to us. He's this personal God who's in personal relationship with us and personally acquainted with all of our ways. I mean, David in Psalm 139 talks about this and he just says such knowledge is it's too wonderful for me to even think about that God, you are this intimate in my life. I love Jesus, how he in John 17 prays maybe what might be one of the most important prayers in the Bible. It's, it's right before he's about to face the anguish of the cross and in that agony, as he calls out to God, he, he addresses God as Holy Father. Now just think about those two words, Holy Father. I mean, nothing captures who God is maybe more than those two words. Holy because God is just that. He's, he's so beyond us. He's so distinct from us. He's, he's above all, uh, and yet he's not just a God that's way out there. He's Father, Holy Father, so personal, so close, so intimate that even the most orphaned person in the world right now could feel like a son if he knew this Father. This is God. And I think this is why God doesn't just give us one creation account, but he gives us two creation accounts. The second creation story in Genesis chapter 2. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I know, that was a very long introduction. 
And I'm gonna start at verse eight because we've already looked at this. And I can tell you right now, the one verse that we're gonna look at is verse 15, but just so we can get into this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man, literally Adam, which means the human that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil were. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. And it winds through the entire land of the Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Its aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds throughout the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the Adam, the human, the man, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded to the man, you are free to eat from the tree in the garden, from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree at the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And that's just some dramatic effect for the weeks to come. You may be seated. So if the first creation account uh, describes this holy God, a God that is so awesome, so holy other and above the world that he's made. The second creation speaks about God as our father, a God who is close and personal, a God who draws near. In fact, even in the second creation story here in Genesis 2, uh, it's not just Elohim God, but now it's Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal name of God. It's personal. Because the second account also describes a God now who's not just way out there, but a God who comes and makes his home here with us in a a garden. And here in that garden, God is Emmanuel, God with us, God making his home among us. And so I loved how Trig put this two weeks ago. We need to hold these uh, two truths about God that kind of almost our intention, we need to hold them tightly, that God is holy, holy, holy. I mean, right now, that is what is sung in his presence by millions upon millions of angels. It's all they can sing. And they have to cover their faces when they sing it, because this is who God is. But God is also a father. He's here right now. He's close. He's among us. He's Emmanuel. Not a hair can fall from your head without him knowing it. And then think about not just who God is in light of these two creation stories, but also think about who we are because this is the second most important reason why God is giving his people Genesis. He's not here to just say, let me tell you who I am. Let me, let me also tell you who you are. And remember, this is a people who've been slaves for generations. If you've been born a slave, this is not just something 
that you do or you perform. It becomes something that you are. It becomes your very identity. And so in light of this, look at what God is telling them. In light of the first creation story, he's saying, Israel, you are not slaves. You are made according to my kind. You've been made in my image. You're like me. It's just a little less than God. And who is God in Genesis 1? He's the king of the universe, the one who made the world to whom the whole world belongs. He is its rightful king and ruler. So the implications of being made like God are huge. If we're made in his likeness, it means that we are kings, that we are queens. And what is a king, a queen's vocation? It's to rule, to subdue, to have dominion. And that's precisely what God does in Genesis 1 with with, with the human, the humans made in his image, male and female, is he takes the keys of the universe and he gives it to them. And he says, you are in charge. You are given rule and, and dominion to, to, to steward my world for, for my glory, to be like me, to king and queen uh, in, in a way that you cause my world that I've made that is good to flourish for, for all my glory. I remember when I was a youth pastor, Pregnancy Resource Center opened up doors so that I could go into the Chicago public high schools. Uh, I get to talk to uh, 10th, 11th, 12th graders. And uh, a little bit crazy at first going into these rooms. Um, but when I would get early in the game and I'd, I'd ask them, do you know who you are right now? Do you know who you are? Start getting a little more quiet. And then I would just, tell them who they are. I I would say, do you know that God made you? Do you know that God fashioned you? Do you know that God knows you right now down to your very cell? Do you know that not a hair can fall from your head without him knowing it? And then I'd say, ladies, do you know who you are right now? Do you know that God made you to be a queen? And we'd really get quiet. And, 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 these teenage girls, they would just be looking at me with, with this look of like, could that really possibly be true? And I would just keep pushing it. Yes, God made you to be, to be a queen. So respect yourself as a queen. Treat yourself like a queen. Demand that others treat yourself like a queen. Live like a queen. I'd, I'd say literally, you ought to feel right now that there's almost a crown on your head because you're so queenly. I look at the guys and just say, guys, do you know that every guy in this room is a king? Do you know that God put a king in your chest? And I'd go on and <laughs> this week, I saw this wonderful quote from Deion Sanders. Can I quote Deion Sanders? It's college football season. (laughs) That's what he said to his team. How you see yourself, you've got to start seeing you the way God sees you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are more than a conqueror. You are created to have dominion and you are blessed. And please understand all the positivity going on in your life right now and stop allowing all the negativity to dominate your mind. You are God's masterpiece and the light of the world. Now act like it. 
And I think God's saying the same thing to us. Do you know who you are? Act like it. Live into it. We need to live like kings. We need to li uh, live like queens. Jesus, the king of kings, says, all authority in heaven and earth that's been given to me, now I'm giving it to you. Go. We don't do this in an arrogant sense. We do it like our king of kings, Jesus, in a very humble way. Think about all the domains that God has entrusted to us from our time to our talents to our money and our possessions, our bodies, our relationships, our spheres of influence. That's Genesis 1. Now we're in Genesis 2. And now we're going to find out that we're something even more than just kings and queens, but in the second telling of creation, where God is portrayed as Emmanuel, this God with us, this God who comes close to us, who's personal like a father. Uh, in fact, even when you look at how God creates Adam in, in the second uh, creation story versus the first one, it's, it's so personal, it's, it's almost like a potter uh, with, with, with clay and God just taking that clay in his hands and, and forming that clay into this little miniature of himself and then God taking his breath and breathing into that clay, his very soul and that piece of clay, that little miniature becomes a living thing. And then God makes a home for himself on earth in a garden in a place called Eden. And this garden becomes the world's first sanctuary. I don't let that word sanctuary scare you. Sanctuary is simply where God makes his home. It's a place where God lives, where he dwells. And there are two features in this garden that tells us that it's a sanctuary. First is the tree of life. Uh, that tree of life is the world's power source. It's the life source. All the life and energy that, that pulsates in the world emanates from that tree. And that tree represents God, his presence. And without that tree, the lights would go out. The world would descend back into darkness, back into the Tohuve Bohu. The second feature of this garden is the river that flows within it, and that river is more than water. It's living water. It's Maim Kaim, and living water in the Bible always represents God and the life of God. This is why this river not only flows into the garden, but then why it flows out of the garden, breaking into four rivers, because it's going to the four corners of the earth. And the reason why Eden is called Eden, because Eden means this deep, restful, Delight, this all-satisfying pleasure. It's because God's there. And can you picture this garden? I mean, can you picture the life of God in this place, the river of God? Can you see that special tree of life on fire, but the tree not being consumed? And then after God creates this garden... God makes Adam, he takes Adam, he, he places the human in that garden, essentially telling him, where my home is, that's where your home is. Your home's gonna be with me. And then the purpose for this, in verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. 
So here what we have. If Genesis 1 is telling us that we're kings and queens called to rule, Genesis 2 is telling us we are priests who are called to priest. Because what's a priest? Priest is exactly what Adam and then Eve are called to do. It's someone whose vocation is to work and to take care of God's garden, his home. And so those two words in verse 15, work and to take care, uh, in the Hebrew are the words avad and shamar. So being a priest is doing these two things. It, It begins with avad, and avad in Hebrew means to work, but it can also mean to worship. Then you're left asking, well, what is it? Is it to work or is it to worship? Because in our mind, those are two separate things, but not in the biblical mind. In the biblical mind, our work is our worship. And that's the essence of a priest. And that's what they're to bring into this sanctuary, into this garden where God lives, is avad, worship. That's so what priests are, they're, they're worshipers. They're, they're people who, who make their, their home in the presence of God, worshiping him, exalting him, reflecting back to God, God's glory. This is the very reason why we have been created. It's to declare the praises of God with every fiber of our being. Let me ask, do you ever have these moments in worship where your mind just says to yourself, oh, I was made for this. I was just so made to do this, where, where, where you get this small taste of Eden, that deep, restful delight from being in God's presence, worshiping him. I can humbly say I do. I have this experience quite a bit. Um, I get it here, I had it today. I had it in both services. Uh, I I have it personally. And, And the reason for this, and the reason for when you have it as well, is this is why we are made. We were made to worship God. See, we're not just made to be like God, but we've also been made for God to simultaneously reflect God and thirst for God. That's a priest. A priest is someone who gives themselves to avad, to worship, who, who draws people into the presence of God to worship God because they themselves are worshipers. A priest is someone who knows that as our bodies need oxygen, so... Our souls were made to breathe God. Years ago, I remember standing in the back of a church that I was attending at that time, and kind of halfway into the uh, gathering space during time of worship, uh, I saw this 20-something guy, six foot five, huge wingspan, and he just, the whole time he was worshiping, he just had his hands in the air like this, And I felt my heart just like being drawn into God's presence as as this guy. And and afterward, I had to meet him. He became one of my best friends. 
and our first youth pastor at this church years later, Derek Tages. I have it still on Sunday mornings uh, when, I, when I come into this place and, and I see someone who's just worshiping God with their whole heart or sometimes I see someone at the mikvah bowl uh, just like tears in their face and just turning back to God or recently we had communion during uh, the first part of our gathering and during the second service I came down from my office and I came in and this whole community of people were right back there, but, and they were hugging each other, and they were crying. They were feeding each other communion. Or even a couple of weeks ago, this six-year-old girl in the front row just had her hands in, her, in the air, tears coming down her, her cheeks, worshiping God. You know, what she's, you know what all these examples are? People just drawing me into the presence of God. They're priests. And then because work and worship are the same word, it's not just limited to us coming here and declaring the praises of God with our lips. If you remember Eric Little, who was a missionary to China, but he's also this Olympic runner. Uh, his running was every bit worship to him as being a missionary. He's the one who said those famous words to his sister. He says, God has made me for a purpose for China, but he's also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. We have a guy on staff right now who might be the most inspiring priest I've ever been around. His name is Ryan DeHaan. Yeah, he keeps our building very clean. That's, that's, his, that's what he does here. But he, like no one else, he points people to Jesus. Like no one else, he loves Jesus. He's drinking in Jesus all the time. He's this constant conduit of Jesus, and he does it with hardly even saying a word. I see homeless people coming in here all the time. Who do they ask for? Where's Ryan? And see, when our work becomes worship, our work becomes Eden, this all-satisfying pleasure. And even more importantly, we become Eden. We become that, that river of Maim Kaim that's bringing Eden to the four corners of the world. And this is the purpose for which Adam and Eve have been created. It's the reason why you and I have been created. It's to avad. It's, it's, it's people whose work is worship, whose work is to expand Eden, to make the whole world Eden, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the whole earth with worship. It's our mission. It's why the theme verse of Crossroads but you crossroads are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, God's special people who are here to declare the praise of God, to be worshipers of the one who brought you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And so the same vocation that God places on Adam and Eve, God is now placing it on us. God made us for a purpose, a massive purpose. Are you a priest? Are you right now an outpost of Eden? Are you a conduit of God's living water? Are you thirsty for this water? Are you drinking this water? Like those rivers flowing out of Eden. Is that water flowing out of your life? Is it flowing out of your work? 
Are you worshiping God through your work with everything that you have? What do anybody say about you right now? You're living water to me. We're priests, we're called to evade, but verse 15 also says there's another thing that we're called to do, and that is shamar, uh, we're to care for God's garden, God's sanctuary. Now to care for, I, I, I just don't really think that gets to the true meaning of, of shamar. Some of your translations are to keep, we're to, we're to keep the garden, that's getting closer, but what it most literally means, the word shamar, it means to protect, it means to guard. And this is exactly what Adam and Eve are called to do. They are called to protect and to guard that garden with their very life. Because remember what that garden is. It's it's not only their home, it's God's home. It's sanctuary. And I'm just blown away how I see this from cover to cover in our Bibles, but even especially in Genesis 1 and 2 is how how much God wants to partner, how he create, creates these uh, creatures in his image uh, for the purpose of partnering. Adam and Eve, would you partner with me? Would you partner with me to protect and to guard my creation? And you're like, wait a second, I thought they were created to guard and protect the garden. The most important way that we guard God's creation is by guarding the garden because all the goodness of God's creation is dependent on that garden. I mean, think about what that garden means to the world. The garden possesses the tree of life, the river of life, and most importantly, God lives there who is the source of life. And we know how this goes, don't we? We're gonna learn about it next couple weeks. Adam and Eve fail to protect the garden. They don't guard it. And as we're gonna see, evil is gonna slither its way in and for a long time be the winner. And as a result of this, an immediate result, you have Genesis 3 verse 24, which we'll also look at. But listen to this. So God then drove the man out and at the east of Eden, He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard, to shamar the way to the tree of life. So because Adam and Eve didn't do it, the cherubim are now placed there to guard God's garden and humanity is separated from God. But here's the gospel and what the rest of Genesis will be about and what the rest of the Bible will be about after Genesis 3 is that God does not give up on a world that he loves or a people whom he loves, but he raises up a people who will be his next Adam and Eve, kings and queens, to reflect God to the world, to be this whole nation of priests, and God will once again plant his garden among them, his sanctuary, his home, his tabernacle. And then from that people, these 12 tribes, one tribe, God says, this is what your your purpose is. Tribe of Levi, you are to Avad and Shemar. You're to bring unadulterated worship and protection to my holy space, to my garden where I'm going to live. And within one generation of this incredible arrangement, here comes Urpin again. 
slithering into God's sanctuary. In fact, Jews to this day, and this goes all the way back to before the time of Jesus, have a name for this tragic, tragic event that is found in Numbers 25. They simply call it Balaam. Because here is Israel in the desert, the surrounding nations are sensing the greatness of this upstart nation. So Balaam, this false prophet, proposes this idea to wipe Israel out. He's like, let's send our young ladies into their camps to seduce them, and we'll wipe them out by making them just like us, and we'll do this through seduction and sexual immorality. Guess what? It worked. (laughs) Just like it's still working today. The enemy's strategy is is still much the same. And, And why? In part, because it just works. Sexual immorality in all its forms is is wiping us out today. It's destroying marriages. It's destroying families. It's destroying the self-worth and identity of millions of people, let alone all the abuse and the exploitation. So if you know this story in Numbers 25, the Balaam story, this thing gets so out of control. Israelite men are, are, are shacking up with Midianite and Moabite women. One Israelite man gets so comfortable that he feels comfortable taking a Moabite woman into the tent, not just a tent, the tent, God's tent, into the garden of God. And a man named Phineas can take this no longer, and he takes his sword and he thrusts it through both of them as they're copulating in God's sanctuary. God in that moment, you can read about this in Numbers 25, says, here is a man after my own heart who has my kana. Kana means jealousy, passion, zeal. God says that about himself to Israel. You shall have no other gods before me because I'm a jealous God. I'm a God of kana. I'm passionate. God loves what Phineas did, not because God loves fanaticism. This action was not fanatical. It was priestly. Phineas is passionate about guarding and preserving God's sanctuary, the place where God's honor and presence dwells. Which is why God then makes an eternal covenant with Phineas. He says, you and your sons will be my priests, my guardians of my holy space forever because that's the kind of person that God wants guarding his garden. And you know what they say about Jesus, who's the priest to end all priests? They said zeal for God's house consumed him. He had that kana, that passion for the dwelling place of God. And if you're thinking that Jesus is a fanatic when he takes that whip in his hand and drives out all those who are buying and selling in the temple, well, listen, that temple is more than just a house of worship. That's God's house. That's the garden of God, his sanctuary. And so what Jesus is doing there is he's doing what Adam should have been doing. He's guarding the house of God. He's preserving the integrity of it. He says, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, and yet you've turned it into a marketplace, a den of robbers. Are you a priest? Do you have this kind of zeal for God's house? 
Do you know where God's garden is today? Do you know that New Testament tells us the most stunning thing when it says the location of God's garden, his sanctuary, is us? God lives in us. We're living sanctuaries. We're outposts of Eden. And not only does it say that, but it says that all of us are priests. Which means something quite amazing that, that as priests, we need to avad and shamar. We, we need to protect and guard God's garden. And that starts here with us, God's church. Right now, we're God's garden. God, right now, he lives in us. He makes his home in us. And we're to be priests. We are to guard and protect his space. And think about all the ways right now that the enemy would like to move in to to diminish us, to, to get us off track biblically, to sow seeds of division with us. I mean, right now, whether you know this or not, we're in a fight. The New Testament says it, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of this dark world. And as a pastor here, I, I, I can attest that the enemy has gotten some footholds internally. You know, the battle out there uh, for us as Christians is, is hard enough, but when the greatest battles are internal, as Jesus said, a house divided, it cannot stand. And I can say with all honesty that in the last year and a half, I've spent more time in this fight than in my previous years in ministry. The elders, the team leads, the staff, we're all engaged in this fight. If you want to know why we spent so many hours uh, aligning our values and our mission and our vision with God and his word, with Christ and his kingdom, you want to know why I've asked every person who's going to preach up here to, to provide a doctrinal statement? Well, listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress and watch, guard your life, guard your doctrine closely, persevere in them. I praise God for where we are right now. Never before since I've been at Crossroads has our church, in my opinion, been more, is more aligned with God, his heart, his word, from the elders to the staff. Parents, our homes are sanctuaries. Are you guarding your home? As parents, you're responsible for your home. You're, you're responsible for what comes in your home. You're responsible for what happens in your home. You're constantly creating culture in your home. Are you creating a culture that worships Christ, that has Christ at the center? Because the things that we value, the things we talk about, the things that we spend our time on, the things that we celebrate, these are the things that we worship. The Bible also says that our bodies, our bodies right now are the garden of God, that God literally takes up residence 
in us. This is why Romans 12 says, therefore, in light of God's great love for us in Jesus Christ, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. When it says a living sacrifice, offer up your bodies, that is priestly language. And our sacrifice to God, which is to be pleasing and acceptable in his sight, is our bodies, the garden of God. And I'll be the, I'll be the first to say, I, I'll be the first to confess that my body is so fallen with all of its carnal desires. And these desires aren't going away anytime soon. I have to priest every moment of every day. And finally, our hearts. The Bible says, guard your hearts, for out of it flows the wellsprings of life. Think about what this is saying, that all of life flows out from our hearts. And the hearts is the very place where God comes in and makes his home. Which is why anything in our heart, in our life, that is hindering our obedience and worship to God it needs to be evaluated and dealt with. This is the essence of what it means to guard, protect our hearts. For out of it flows living water, the wellsprings of life. There's so much at stake here. What a high calling. What massive realities and potential. We are the garden of God. Our bodies, our homes, our hearts. This is why I'd like to end the service with, with mikvah. Mikvah is just a way of repenting. The Jewish people have such a high view of repentance. They believe that before God created the heavens and the earth, he created seven other things. First, he created Torah, his word, and the second thing that God created was repentance. God knowing what we are, who we are, that, that God created this before he created us and the world because repentance is our ability because of God and his goodness to look at our lives and look at the hands, the things our hands have done, which are not of God, things that are Hearts have, have wanted and desired that are not of God. Things that our minds have thought, that our mouths have spoken. And we can repent. We can turn back. We can stain our bodies. We can invite things in that, we, that are so not God. And we can come back to God and be white as snow. And so this morning, God, as we hear just why you made us, the purpose for us, the purpose for your church and all the massive potential, God, it just leaves us saying right now, we're desperate for you. And God, you don't want us to come here and just play games and to sing songs and to make melodies, and to preach sermons, and to raise money. God, you want a home where you can dwell, and that's us. 
and where your living water can flow in and flow out, where we can leave this place and be outposts of Eden. God, would you cause our hearts to repent? Would you show us the great purpose for which we were made? And God, where we have fallen short in word, in thought, in deed, God, that we would repent, come back to you, be washed. We bless you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that the sin and things in our lives that we repented of, it's already been forgiven. It's already been taken care of. And that when we turn back to you, you're the father in the porch, you're just running to us. Because you love what your hands have made. We bless you. We turn to you. Because of Jesus.